As Brother Pat mentioned, um, if you got your Bible with you, we're in 2 Timothy. I find it necessary this morning that, that we take a break from our, our text series in Hebrews. And you may find that some have become weary week in and week out, going uh, verse by verse to the Hebrews. In fact, you yourselves may uh, feel that the joy in studying uh, such a remarkable book as what we've seen in the past months may uh, cause you to be slowly diminishing in joy. And it may be an opportunity this morning for, for the Lord and for the Spirit to renew your joy in studying His Word. And I believe that this is a necessary passage for us to go to. And the change may come as some surprise to you. And it does to me as well. I expected this week to continue in Hebrews, but I believe the Lord uh, had something different for us than, than where we've been. But I believe that this is because the direction that the church is moving in this new year and uh, with uh, the zeal that I believe some of us men have for the church and for uh, the work for Christ, I believe that this is a, a good place for us to start this morning. A good place to, to open your Bibles and see why that we read the Scripture the way that we do, why that we uh, assemble every week, why it's necessary to study diligently uh, these Scriptures as we've been through Hebrews for nearly a year now. And I think that uh, the second book of Timothy chapter 1, uh, the second book of Timothy in the first chapter that is, that there is a a monumental statement made by Paul. In fact, many monumental statements, but I believe it's something that the church uh, can certainly build upon and something that we should all read together. So I'll ask that you turn there and uh, we'll read it and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. I want to read the first 14 verses. Another uh, change for you this morning. 14 verses says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promises of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, 
which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we just ask for you to reveal to us the truth in this scripture, uh, to see Christ in his marvelous gospel, Lord, to see our uh, responsibility as man, Lord, that which you have entrusted us with, or that we would be found faithful, that we would be found eagerly serving, God, that we would serve your church and your people, Lord, that we would serve even the lost so that they, as Paul said, that they might be one. God, we just pray this morning for an abundance of your grace and mercy and discernment as we look to your word uh, to know Christ more, Lord, to love him and to serve him. Lord, we pray for your church universal. We pray for the local church. God, and we pray that you would be glorified and that you would be truly worshipped and exalted today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't necessarily plan on going long, but sometimes James keeps tabs on me. And uh, I heard something uh, this week by John MacArthur. And as he talked about worship, he said that oftentimes he would be criticized for a long sermon and people would say, uh, with sermons that long, how is there any time for worship? And his response is, with sermons that short, how do your people know what worship is? And so I, I hope you would take that to mind if I, if I was to go over today. But I believe this is a, a very important study for us this morning. And so I want to look back, beginning there with verse 1. Paul begins here, An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He's beginning here with, like many epistles, accrediting uh, to himself this title and this establishment in Christ that is his apostleship. He's not boasting in the flesh, but he's boasting in Christ that Christ has appointed him to such a high position, such an important position. And this is not simply just Jesus, but this is Jesus that is the Christ. This is Jesus that is Lord. And this, although we have seen it many times and have studied it and I've made mention of it each time that we're in epistle an epistle of Paul's because he most often begins uh, the letter this way we've looked at it and we have come to realize that it is a very important statement it's just it's not like you know brother Charlie signing something deacon or me signing something pastor Paul is signing apostle one who is appointed by Christ one who has seen Christ in the flesh, one who has been a witness to all these things, yet he says all the things that he have witnessed uh, is such a marvel, yet it is minuscule in light of what has been written in the word of God, that word which the apostle is to bring, the sent out one of God. And so many times we see this statement and we often look over it and don't give it such credit that we should and see how wonderful it is how powerful a statement that one will be an apostle and that this statement should also serve to us as a reminder as to why we are here 
today gathered as the church. We're not in the church. We are the church. We're gathered as the church because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a great calling upon Paul's life this time. And we should recognize that because of Paul's great calling, there is, in fact, a church. And the church is following the very same model of worship that Paul followed. It's worshiping the very same God that Paul worshiped. And Paul is doing what he should for the sake of the gospel and for the name's sake of Christ, as should the church today. And so what I would submit to you is that you, saints of Christ, are to identify with Paul as Paul identifies here with Jesus in this title, Apostle. And the verse really tells it all by the will of God according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Without that finishing part of the statement there, we really are left uh, in our own minds to kind of wonder what he's saying as he calls himself an apostle by the will of God. But he says, this is according to the promise, to the life that is in Jesus Christ. And it tells us all that we need to know. This is the reason for Paul's apostleship. Because it's God's will. Because it's the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. This is why Paul is sent out. Because these things are true. Because God wants him to minister. And God wants him to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that some would have life in his name. That Christ is glorified. That Christ is magnified. And that he is exalted. This is the reason for apostleship. This is the motive behind the letter as it is written here to Timothy. This is Paul's new desire. You may ask, why is this Paul's new desire? Well, this new desire is really a symbolic fruit of the changed heart that belongs to Paul, a persecutor of Christians, a hater of Christ. He's showing us that there is a mighty saving power of God in Christ and that He has sent His Holy Spirit. We saw it last week as Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, this great man of the Jews in John chapter 3, and Jesus excuse me, answers Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so what we have in this motive behind the letter is that Paul is speaking because of what Christ has done. What Christ has done is true and it's revealed and it's unveiled to Paul because of the work of the Spirit. And this is the fruit that he would be sent out. And so the key here is to see that the Spirit alone is applying the work of Christ. And he's doing so unto new life because now Paul has this new desire to serve the church, to look after the people of God, to exalt Christ, to proclaim Christ, to preach Christ, to exhort His brethren so that they too would act as disciples of Christ. The key is to see the Spirit at work and to see that as He has granted new life, He is also commanding and demanding that man would repent as He gives him repentant faith. And as the Holy Spirit is revealing to us the truth of He who has died on Calvary's cross. 
And so what we see here is that Paul is speaking in no uncertain terms, saying that as I begin to speak to you, Timothy, and then we should see that he's saying, as I begin to speak to you, church, because God knew that the church would receive this message. He's saying, as I begin to speak to you, it is not of my own will or of my own fleshly desire, but because of the riches that I have in Jesus, I speak to you. And this is the basis of why we come to this passage this morning. Then verse 2 says to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, beloved son. This is important because this instruction is given to one whom is recognized as Timothy as an elder, as a preacher or a pastor, and most certainly a disciple. And in that we have a letter that can be useful, not simply just to one named here, Timothy, but most importantly to every teacher, to every elder, to every pastor in every church. But one should not quickly give up on the text as we see those things, but we should continue rather to see that this is to every leader, every responsible man who is to serve Christ's church, for every man who is commanded to lead in his family and in his home. And last but not least, this letter is written to Timothy and it's calling him beloved child, beloved son, because it is written to every man, woman, and child as we can identify with Timothy as a beloved son, a beloved child, and not just of Paul, the apostle, whom has preached this message to the Gentiles, whom we are, but because we are children of God who have received the grace and the mercy and the peace that is spoken about there in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have it defined for us. And now we know why this doesn't simply apply to one man, but every man who is in Christ... On display is the powerful transformation in Christ. And the power of that transformation as a selfish man is now recognizing himself as a sinner. And he now loves those who are his kin and who are his neighbor. That's what's happened to Paul. Just a few years ago, Paul would have killed you. And he would have enjoyed doing it. And he would have boasted in searching you out and destroying you but now here is a Paul who is broken who is loving Christ and who is now loving his neighbor as himself where once the flesh was selfish now the love of Christ not only secures the victory over sin and death but the extension of that love from one brother to another as we see from Paul to Timothy it reveals the fact that he, being Christ, abides in the heart of those who are his. And that's the picture of what we're getting here. And therein is even a greater truth that any son to Paul, according to the Spirit, because we know this is not his biological son, he must inevitably be a child of God, adopted by the Master. And that is summed up in that Paul could expect the latter things in this verse. Grace, mercy, peace from God because we too have been adopted. All of these things through Christ Jesus. 
Then as we get to verse 3, it says, I thank God whom I serve, who I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Here is a model for the church by Paul. We see evidence that we should serve as true worshipers, have always served. And that's not in how we do things. That's not worship because, and, and do it this way according to this time and this sequence. That's not all what is being said, but it's saying what God has appropriated as true worship has always been true worship. And those who worship for any reason other than to glorify God, it is not worship. And what we have here is a model. And I believe it. Charlie said it. John has said it. So many times, everything that we do is worship. And as we attended this conference this week where the, the topic was worship, there, were, there was the desire for some people and the, the limited scope to see worship as music. And then, of course, there are others who, like us, would agree there's more to worship than music. In fact, music is very... Uh, minor in the scope of worship and I considered how many times that, that I've heard uh, brother Charlie and, and John Cardwell as well talk about that all we do is worship and I realized not only all that we do as Christians is worship to God but all that any human being does is worship to something so if your worship is unto God and you're serving as everything that you do is unto God, then it's worship to God. But if you are, are, are doing something else and it is not for God, it is worship given to an idol. And I believe verse 3 describes a worship that is not unto an idol, but is unto a God. And we see evidence of this. And the statement is all too familiar as you would consider Paul's statement again in Romans chapter 1 verse 9 as he says it another way. He says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul is describing worship in a way that the modern church does not see worship. Worship is not merely what's done in the sight of others. But what he begins with that statement saying, he says, God is my witness. God knows for what reason I do whatever I do. And he says, whom I serve with my spirit. Now, many men will try to offer worship to God in a lot of ways, but often void of spirit. And he says, I serve with my spirit, meaning that he has given all that he has, soul, mind, body, and strength to serving God. How does he do it? He cannot serve God unless it is in the gospel of his son, he says. I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then that would mean that worshiping is not merely music. Worshiping is not merely coming together on Sunday, but anything that we do according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we are out evangelizing, if we are praying, as he says soon after that, we are worshiping God and he is the witness to the worship. In fact, I would say that if God is not a witness to our worship, there is no worship to God. This reveals that there was no conflict in Paul. Although being a Jew, 
to worship and serve as he had, he was not bothered by it. The culture would not determine Paul's worship. The culture would not determine Paul's service to God, but rather God alone would sanctify it. God alone would purpose it. There was no battle between Paul's mind and spirit because his conscience, as he says, was clear. His newfound service was pleasing to God as he had never been pleasing to God before, though he had been esteemed highly among the Jews. And we know that the conscience here is really key. And the conscience is indeed given to God as Paul is describing this. We've learned in the past weeks that its purpose... uh, is to serve the man of God to reveal the truth, to show him the difference between wrong and right, that the man may truly worship in spirit and in truth. And to sever such a conscience would mean that there is rebellion in our hearts against the one that we say we assemble here today to fellowship with and to offer our worship to. And Paul is telling us what that must look like. And that the conscience is there to serve the believer that he may serve Christ. Paul says in Acts chapter 23 verse 1, And Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. It's not letting man decide what worship looks like. And we as a church should not allow past church. We should not allow the pastor of the church or the deacons or any elders to determine what worship looks like. But we together should decide what the Bible, because the Bible is God in the flesh, God speaking, the word became flesh, it says, John chapter 1. This is who describes to us how worship must be conducted. What is worship? How it is to be given and offered to God with this clear conscience. The conscience as well points men to righteousness. But Paul also said their conscience being weak is defiled. And so we have for us a strong urging to watch after even the conscience. Because a defiled conscience is a weak man. And a strong conscience is a man that is being pointed to Christ. Paul was able to serve because he preached an unchanging gospel. The only gospel to ever exist. The only gospel to ever save. For this reason, he was stricken, yet nonetheless relieved in mind that he was truly serving God as he had never served before. To serve God properly. And then the text goes on to say, That he was constantly praying for those who were his brethren. Night and day. Then verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. He loved to see the people of God. Why are we here? Do we feel as Paul felt about this assembly? And as we move to verse 6. We see the progression of the kingdom through the foolishness of preaching. 
I'm reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. But God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We're seeing the progression of what the gospel does. Transforming Paul, molding Paul, causing Paul to care for those whom he never cared for, causing Paul to preach what he had never preached, causing Paul to bend the knee where he had never been. And we see that this is from generation to generation to the next of God's people earnestly and joyfully transmitting His Word with power and authority from heaven. This is a command not simply given to Timothy, but is given to the entire church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Read again verses 5 and 6. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother. This must be a faith that is not new to us. A faith that is not some new spin on Christianity. And we'll see why later that is important. For this reason I'm reminded. And I remind you, excuse me, to fan into the flame the gift of God. Which is in you. Paul here is in no way doubting the faith of Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. But what Paul is doubting here. And what Paul is really calling into question is the movement of that faith within Timothy. Where is the movement? Where is the execution of your faith? Where is the fruit being labored over? And Timothy is being exhorted here to engage his gifts and to fulfill the commands of God, the commands of God's Word, in simply preaching Christ. I say simply because it is in fact very simple. Man alone cannot preach Christ unto salvation. Therefore, it is man who just simply speaks and the holy sovereign God enables this mouth to speak, enables a lying tongue to profess such a great truth, such a sinner to exalt the most high God in Christ. Simple that Christ has finished it as Brother Charlie read this morning. Christ is applying it. Christ is preparing us with it. Christ is preaching it through us. Oh, how marvelous is it to consider that we are this clay that is molded by the precious nail-pierced hands of God. Jesus Christ preparing us to preach His gospel. And what is being said here of Paul as he continues through the next seven verses, as he speaks to Timothy, he's saying, fulfill your office, O man. Don't let this passage stare you in the face and think, this is not for me because I'm not an elder or I'm not a pastor or I'm not a deacon or I'm not even a man, I'm a woman. Don't look at it that way. 
because you'll miss out on a lot. He's saying, fulfill your office, child of God. And I, to you, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, I'm saying, fulfill your offices. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Lift up your brothers and sisters in Christ. But you cannot do it at home. Not merely at home. You can't do it once or twice a week in this building. It must be done in thought, in word, in deed, in heart, soul, mind, and strength. We read it this morning in the catechism. How are we to serve the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what the Lord describes and what He prescribes and what He desires of all that belong to Him. Let His Word in our service separate the wheat from the chaff. This is not something that I say needs to be, some, needs to be done. It is something that will be done. The Word is very clear. None is hidden from Him. You can't hide. And just as a side note, if you look back, it says uh, in the text there, the gift that He's talking about, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hand. Don't let the world pervert this, that the hands of man are somehow powerful. It says that this is the work of, of God. This is to imply on Paul's behalf that it is with his hands, but not by his hands, that the gift of God comes. No man can impart to you a gift of God. For Paul's appeal is not to the work that he has inspired or coerced Timothy to do, but that which is instead led and propagated by the Spirit of God. And we wonder why it's so necessary to be filled with the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. Paul is describing here because man's hands can do nothing unless the Spirit is there. Like John chapter 3, man is merely a recipient from the work above in Christ. He is to be once and for all led from above. Born of the Spirit, he said to Nicodemus. The work of Christ's Spirit. And then we get to verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Verse 7 takes away all of man's excuses. Every excuse that you have not to assemble, not to come. Every excuse that you have not to evangelize, not to preach the gospel, not to proclaim that Jesus is the only way. Here it is given. Uh, no excuse. A spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. One that we would not be fearful of how someone would react to our presentation of the gospel. Or how someone will view us. Or that they'll hate us or that they'll mock us. Or that we don't like talking to people that we don't know. Not a spirit of fear. That is not a spirit of God is what the Bible is telling us. Now you're like, well, I'm like Moses. I'm not really a good speaker. Forget Aaron here because the Bible says he has given us a spirit of power. A spirit of power to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it says a spirit of love. A love that is so controlling that it says this person will go to hell unless they hear the gospel of Jesus. 
And you have the power to proclaim it. And self-control. To know how to use the sword of the Spirit. To know how to walk uprightly. So that we do not cause to be accounted to Christianity something that is of the flesh. So that we're truly protecting the gospel, living the gospel, modeling the gospel. That we do not taint the gospel in the eyes of the unbeliever. All of these excuses taken away. And you'll notice that the excuses are taken away because we are not doing the work. The work is in Christ. The work is by the Spirit. We must only preach, proclaim, confess, believe. Then we get verses 8 through 13. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but sharing in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look what it says abolished death and brought to life the immortality to light through the gospel. When I think about Jesus conquering death, I think about, uh, in, in simple terms, a wrestling match or a boxing match. The difference is that when Christ defeats death, there will be no rematch. There is not a second chance to be overcome by death and by sin. Christ holds the title. Says that he has abolished it. He has defeated it and abolished it, meaning it is gone. No hold on the believer. He says, for which I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. There is no doubt in Paul's mind. He is knowingly, he is not making an ignorant decision or a guess. He says, I know with certainty whom I have believed. And the one whom I have believed is not one to be doubted, but this is the Jesus who is the Christ. And I am convinced that the truth has come forth and the evidence is overwhelming to Paul. I am convinced that he is able to guard it until that day. That what has been trusted, entrusted to me. Then he says this, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then we arrive at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit, may these things be done. Who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What does it say there in the King James, Brother Charlie? Verse 14. The good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Paul is talking there about a treasure. Our instruction is to guard this 
good deposit. If you'll simply look back to First First Timothy chapter six, the very last two verses before entering into this particular chapter that we read today, First Timothy chapter six, verse twenty. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is why sometimes the titles and chapters don't mix well. Paul hasn't come up with a new statement here in chapter 2. But he is resounding what he has just said in chapter 1. Guard this treasure. Guard this treasure. It's not just any treasure. It's the treasure that is backed, that is solidified in solid Bible doctrine. Why is doctrine important? Because he says it. And so what I'm saying here as I preach the message is I'm preaching to you about my responsibility. As one who would be uh, seen similar to Timothy here in the Bible, I have this good deposit, this wonderful treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I am called to, to guard it, to protect it. My responsibility as pastor is to come before you every time that we meet and bring this treasure and lay it out before you so that you may see the riches of Jesus Christ before you. And so that you may marvel over it and know that it is yours. Know how it works and how it applies. But you know, it doesn't just simply stop with me presenting the treasure. I'm to guard the treasure. Because guess what? The, the wonderful thing about this treasure is that the treasure is to be guarded. It's to be kept out of the hands of those who would smear it and taint it and spoil it. But the treasure is also to be given to those who are in Christ. You're guarding your own treasure. But you know what that means for the church? That means that as great a responsibility as the pastor, as the elder, as the teacher, and the deacons, and the men of this church have to bring forth this treasure every time we meet, you, as the people of God, have the responsibility to take this treasure when it's being given. Not to just sit in a pew and say, this message isn't for me this week. This is your responsibility. God is laying out a treasure before you in Jesus Christ and His gospel, and we are to take it up as a church. And not just as a church, but we're to take this gospel and to continually display these gifts that God has given us to proclaim this gospel to someone outside these walls. Protectors of what is good. Keepers and sharers of this great treasure. Do you know why? The treasure is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that saves, right? And so this deposit is being given to the church 
that the church would take this treasure, this gospel, this message of Jesus Christ, and share it with others. And what does the treasure do? The treasure grows. The treasure gets larger. But the key is here. And what he says, he says one back, back a few verses where he says, I am persuaded, I am sure, I am certain about this one whom I am believed in. I am, I am persuaded, I am convinced that he, through the Spirit, is able to guard it. And he's using Paul. But he calls it this in verse 14, a deposit. You know what's wonderful about a deposit? The one who owns it is coming back for it. There is a time limit on a deposit. Christ is coming back for his treasure. His treasure is everything that the gospel has built. We as a church often look to the pulpit, to the teacher, and we determine based on what is said on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night service, well, that just wasn't that good. He, that really didn't, really didn't intrigue me any. It didn't engage me. The problem is that you don't like treasure. Heavenly treasure. And that when we are to come and sit in the pew and hear the saving message of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. It ought to be as if we're looking at the greatest vault under heaven. Contained in the pages of scripture. That's why he says, give attention to the public reading of the word. When you come to church, if we had a 14 year old preacher in the making given the most basic sermon you've ever heard, rest assured that God is giving a treasure in Jesus Christ through that. And that we all may be partakers. So our instruction here really is to believe the gospel and to preach the gospel and to live the gospel for the glory of God because God is the gospel. Christ is the treasure. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. If anyone be in Christ, he is the treasure of heaven. Christ is coming for this good deposit and it's entrusted with I, it's entrusted with you, everyone who claims to be a believer. So if we boil that down, believe God Preach Christ who is God. Live for God to the glory of our great God. Not just Timothy. Not just the pastor. The elder. Everyone who claims to have been changed by this gospel. Guard it. Do not let it be changed. Do let it not be blemished or altered. But also as you're keeping it from some who would pervert it, we are to be giving it to those who will receive it. Entrusted to you is the greatest treasure in heaven, Jesus Christ. Entrusted to this church 
is the greatest treasure. And I want you to know that the walls of this building is not the vault. The walls of this building, they are not the vault that contains the treasure. Here is the treasure. Here is the treasure. Here is the treasure. What do you do with your treasure? What will you do this year with your treasure? What will we do after the men's meeting tomorrow with the treasure? Shall we continue to keep it? Will we bury our talents? Or will we invest them? Isn't that what the parable was talking about? We'll just hide what, what he's gave me and I'll have the same thing when he comes back. Hadn't lost none, hadn't got any. That is not what the gospel says. Either Paul or, I mean, either Charlie or Pat said it this morning. I think it was Pat quoting Paul. I become all things to all men that some might be saved. What does that mean? He's investing his treasure because some will be saved. This is the treasure under heaven. This is Jesus Christ, God, the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Fathers, we come before you once again, Lord. We just ask that uh, you would mold us, God. You would conform us to be great guards of this treasure, of this deposit. Lord, because it does not belong to us simply, to ourselves, to be kept, Lord, but it, it belongs to you. Excuse me. It belongs in heaven. God, this deposit is, is wonderful. It's holy. Lord, and our hearts are not even worthy for it to be stowed away in. Lord, but we, we worship you. We thank you. Lord, we fall before the cross because you have given us such a great treasure. Lord, we just ask that you would make us great guards of it. Lord, that we would be great investors in it. Lord, great investors of it. Lord, that we may uh, be long-suffering with this gospel that we be full of grace and full of mercy like our Lord Jesus Christ as we present it or that we would be uh, discerning how we use it or but that we would not leave it resting but that we would put it to work in Jesus name we pray amen